First and foremost, welcome to another stupendous episode of the Voices of Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu. You know, upon starting my doctorate in higher education, I often thought about what I wanted to do post-graduation. With this in mind, I surrounded myself around people who are currently working in jobs I could one day see myself aspiring to. Today we have with us my brother, a mentor, and somebody I greatly admire, Dr. Tierney Bates, an assistant vice chancellor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For those interested in learning more about the beast that is higher education, this is definitely an episode you don't want to miss. So sit back, tune in, and listen, because this is the Voices of Black Folk podcast. Welcome to another amazing episode of Voices of Black Folk. Today, I am so excited. We have with us somebody that I consider a mentor, somebody that has traversed so many different obstacles. And so without further ado, I introduce you to Dr. Tierney Bates. So Tierney, please tell us a little bit about who you are and, you know, where are you from? Yeah. Well, it was an honor and privilege uh, always to be with you and have a great conversation. But uh, obviously, Tierney Bates, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised mm. uh, in the great state and city of Cleveland, 216, as we like to call it, as far as that's concerned, or, or thieve land, as, <laughs> as, uh, growing up, as we like to say, right? Uh, home of right down the street where LeBron grew up. I actually went to college at the University of Akron mm. uh, and used to see LeBron James when I was in college play his high school games. Uh, and knew the neighborhood where he grew up at because we used to throw fraternity parties over there. Uh, and so, <laughs> so yeah, we was in the hood throwing fraternity parties, man, at college. That's how it is, though, when you go to PWI. They won't, let us, they won't let us come on campus and throw nothing, you know what I'm saying, because they have this perception. So we got to go to the hood where exactly. our people love us, exactly. you know what I'm saying, and, and let us have some parties and fun there as far as that's concerned. But originally from Cleveland, grew up there. Um, you know, I tell people I grew up with both my parents, but my parents did divorce. Uh, when I was a teenager, as far as that's concerned, uh, I was very close with my father growing up. So I know that people have those different dynamics of uh, parenthood and dealing mm -hmm. with their parents. But I was very close with my dad, who taught me a lot uh, growing up as a kid and as an adult. Um, God rest his soul. As far as that concerned, graduated from college uh, with a master's degree. I mean, a bachelor's degree in high, uh, mass media communications with a minor in African-American history. And, mm -hmm. and then went on and got a master's in higher education an MBA degree, and then eventually my doctorate uh, in educational leadership as far as I'm concerned. And basically, I came in to work into the field of higher education. Um, after when I first graduated, I worked in corporate America, but I realized it wasn't my calling. And I had did so much in my undergraduate experience, RA, homecoming king, fraternity, SGA, uh, leadership council, the whole nine. Uh, and didn't realize that I could actually do this for a career mm -hmm. to embrace on the administrative side and still teach uh, in a university setting as far as that's concerned. So uh, at the age of probably, what, 23, 24 years old at that time, I decided to come back and get all those other extension degrees uh, besides my bachelor's. Uh, what I realized when I was getting my master's degree, both of them, mm -hmm. is that the true power resists not only in administration, but at the senior level table. Mm. And so I've sat on a mission since then to get to the senior level table and eventually become, hopefully through God's grace, a college president where I can truly impact change and change management, particularly not for the institution, but also for students and students who look like me. Mm. Uh, so whether that's at an HBCU, whether that's at a predominantly white institution, I know in a leadership role, and this is what my dissertation actually is based upon, my dissertation was on Afro-American college males leading predominantly white institutions 
And so mm. I talk about how we're needed in all spaces mm. uh, in that regards and how leadership is viewed. As me and you were just talking about before we got on this, talking about, you know, when I thought of a lawyer or a doctor, you thought of a white male. Mm. What I want the future to hold and look for, when I think of a college president, I think of Will and I think of Terry Bates. Mm. That's where we have to change the narrative around uh, from that particular uh, reason. And so uh, my goal is to pour into all the students, all the staff, uh, and the faculty to be our best sayers and be innovative, mm-hmm. right? Because in higher education, we get what I call stagnant. Mm-hmm. COVID has thrown a monkey wrench in our stuff. The racial integration has thrown a monkey wrench in our stuff. We need to get innovative and creative for the careers, for the future of higher education, the future of our communities uh, as a whole. And I think leadership is based in that. True leaders mm-hmm. see things and are visionary people and walk alone, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then eventually people will walk or follow suit in some regards because it takes others to catch up. I heard Lavelle Moulton say this from uh, North Carolina Central University. He said he had a gift. His mom told him he had a gift and that gift was vision, right? Mm-hmm. But he also had a curse because he's able to see the vision and mm-hmm. able to see certain things. His gift is that, but his curse is not everyone else can see what he sees. Mm-hmm. And so it's-, it's important for us to understand that as visionary transformational leaders, not everybody else will see what you see and it mm-hmm. might take them longer to get there, but true good leaders were, are able to develop, engage, and bring people to there. Mm. That's interesting. I was actually watching that episode of Why Not Us last night where he uh, mentioned it, and it, it hit me on a different level. And, you know, it kind of ties in a little bit to something that you stated earlier. You said you were able, like growing up, you didn't see people that looked like you within these uh, different fields. So talk to us a little bit about what the transition was like, you know, going through uh, your MBA, going through corporate America, where, you know, I'm, I'm in corporate America now. And so I see that from, um, uh, from a work level where, you know, a company tells you that they want diversity, but then when you bring them a diverse candidate, they tell you, they, 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 they hit you with, oh, they don't fit our culture. Mm. Oh, and I'm so, glad this, and so <laughs> talk, talk to us a little bit about what, what, what that experience was like specifically for you? Sure. I'll give you a prime example. So when I first graduated college, walked into a corporation uh, that I was working on, 22 years old, young. Um, obviously, they liked me because uh, it was something about me, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't fit into their culture mm. uh, in some regards. I told them I was a cultural ad, mm. right? Because I was dealing literally majority of the, my, my team or colleagues were white males and older white females, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were only two other people of color in the whole organization mm-hmm. besides myself. And guess what? We already know who had the other one's roles were. One was mm-hmm. a secretary. <laughs> and the other one had a good role. They were actually uh, in the business office and uh, handling um, all the business and HR aspects mm-hmm. uh, of the organization as a whole. But I firmly did not learn uh, why, how, I, I, I should say this, I learned how imposter syndrome feels, mm. right? Because you show up in space, you're 22 years old, black male, and it's predominantly white space, and the jokes and the kidding around and the cultural things that are said, you're like flying over my head. Because I'm like, these cats is 50, 55 years old, more life on themselves, they're white, mm-hmm. and they're talking a different language mm. in some regards. They would bring things up to me like, have you seen this movie, Terry, before? I'm like, talking about boys in the hood? Like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about, bro. Like, I don't, I didn't grow up in that environment. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing I had to teach them and vice versa was we had to meet people where they're at, right? Mm-hmm. 
they had to meet me at as a 22 year old where I was at and say, look, that's cool. Y'all go out and drink beer. I like a little bourbon. That's mm-hmm. not me. But if you want to drink some bourbon, let's go holler at each other from that perspective. Right. So it's just those different idiosyncrasies you had to learn. But for me personally, it taught me a lot too. Right. Mm-hmm. It taught me a lot of how we have to not navigate and assimilate to get ahead in most corporate uh, environments, mm-hmm. because most corporate environments are not um, areas of where you just have to, they're, they're willing to be open. It is very corporate structure, very homogenous mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective. And in a homogenous culture, you got to fit some, you got to have a clean cut, no facial hair, no tattoos, put on a shirt and tie, or I, I've literally written an article for NACE, and I talked about this this morning in a presentation, I'm trying to destroy fit mm. because fit was made in a Eurocentric white ideation. Mm. So even when it was founded of what fit looks like in a corporate entity or a candidate that interviews for a job, it was white male. It mm. was not designed for me and you. It was not designed for females of color. And women of color, particularly black women, are the most educated subpopulation right now in the United States of America, yet they don't get into the leadership roles, they don't get the jobs they need, and they're the least paid. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to understand that if these organizations are talking about, we want more diversity, and this is always telling organization when I said that, I was like, oh, so what you're telling me right now is that you've never been diverse and never thought about what you really needed in a true society, in a mm-hmm. true uh, mm-hmm. organization. And that's when they get the egg on their face, like, well, I mean, you know, and they don't know how to explain certain things to you. No, no, what you're telling me is that you don't feel you're diverse. You've never mm-hmm. talked about diversity. But now that this is a hot topic, I got to go out and hire about your black and brown people, as I like to say, but you could be setting them up for failure mm-hmm. because your culture is still homogenous. They still have to fit into it versus you saying, you know what? I'm going to hire Will. I'm going to hire Tyranny because they don't fit our corporate culture mm-hmm. because we know there'll be a cultural ad that help us shift from a change management and an ideation standpoint to become a better organization. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that's so powerful because, you know, oftentimes we don't, we don't think about that. Right. And I think about, you know, just shifting back to the whole uh, education sphere for a minute. I remember, so I didn't actually start at North Carolina Central as um, a freshman. I started in a school that I'll remain unnamed in Southern (laughs) Minneapolis. And I remember, um, you know, stepping on NCC's campus um, yard and my advisor at the time, we happened to run into uh, Charlie Nelms, who's become a great mentor of mine, yes. who at the time was a chancellor there. And she introduced me. And she was like, hey, Will, this is the chancellor of North Carolina Central University. And what I've been thinking about it, and I, like I looked at her and I was like, oh, where's the where's the white man that runs the school? And she <laughs> right. laughed. Right. And like I was so confused because I never thought a black man could be a president of anything, let alone an institution yeah. of higher education. Right. And so sitting in uh, those classrooms with black professors, sitting in um, different um, student affairs roles and seeing like black leadership, that completely warped my ideology of thinking. And so, you know, we're, we're definitely going to uh, get into um, the, um, the education part of your journey later on. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, what what lessons did you um what lessons did you use in situations where, you know, because I'm sure microaggressions might have been slung at you in so many different situations. And so what lessons did you use or what taxes did you use to not necessarily calm yourself, but also educate your colleagues when, when those instances happen? Sure. 
so I'll give you a great example. I've learned the art of telling you off without knowing you're getting told off, mm. right? Uh, in some regards, because we've all faced microaggressions, mm-hmm. undertones, idiosyncrasies around race and racism as a whole. I won, now I'm a little bad at the age, I can just call it for what it is, spade is spade. When you're early on in your career, a lot of times you have to navigate like, hey, this is my livelihood, you know, I gotta play along to get along. But you get to a certain point where you're able to kind of navigate and tell people off without knowing them knowing they get told off. I'll give you an example of that. When I worked at the University of Tennessee, still young, still engaged there, I was often in uh, circles and realms where I was only the only person of color or very few mm-hmm. color like ways. So I would hear comments said and certain things be made and perspectives. And I would give pushback, right? So prime example is the thought of how drug dealers look, mm. right? And I would say, you know what? A drug dealer doesn't look like me. And they'd be like, what? I was like, well, you know what? That, that great media that you listen to a lot of time when it puts up what a person looks like that's a drug dealer or what the films say, doesn't look like me, why? I'll tell you right now, read your blog in your neighborhood right now, and it'll tell you that there's more drugs in your neighborhood, mm. more incidents in your neighborhood than what you call the hood, the ghetto, or mm. the bad neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The difference is where the light is shining. Mm. And they used to look at me like, huh? I was like, yeah, the light shine on a community that looks like mine, because mm-hmm. it's easy, right? Who controls the media? Who controls who sees what imagery rise? All the other great stuff. So you've been programmed and indoctrinated to think about what an image looks like overall as a whole. So when you think of a drug dealer, you're gonna say, oh, you know, guys with the gold chains. This is what they used to say to me, guys with the gold chains and the uh, you know, crazy cars. I was like, there's some white guys that got that too. So what are we trying to say? So I used to always hit them with those things to make them think twice mm-hmm. about the comments they said, not cussing them out, but pointing out true factors because I said, go pull your blog for where you live at. And they already have a police blog and they'll show you theft here, theft here. And nine times out of 10, when you look at the drug bus, I would I gave them a prime example because we had a drug bus in, in the town. And it was in, the, of course, the rich neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Look at how it's portrayed there versus how it's portrayed in the bad neighborhood mm. by the news media. Mm. I'll give you another example. UNC Chapel Hill, where I'm at right now, and you know I've worked at uh, NCCU as well. If what the fraternities did at UNC Chapel Hill at NCCU, mm. it would have been the number one thing in the headlines, mm. and not only the RDU area, North Carolina, but in the country. Mm. Think about that. You had major weight. You had Ghost and Tommy pushing weight at UNC <laughs> Chapel Hill <laughs> in the fraternity houses, and it was in the news maybe about mm, five to seven days and mm. went away. Had that, I, And you know, I worked at NCCU. McDougal Terrace is four blocks away. (laughs) But if somebody got busted with drugs at North Carolina Central University, Mm -hmm. XYZ uh, is busted with drugs. No, that was over in McDougal Terrace. That was over on uh, a part of Lawson that is no no connection to NCCU. But since it was NCCU's vicinity, Mm -hmm. and it's that neighborhood, which is now being gentrified if you go over there, Mm -hmm. it is a different outlook of how we portray and how we see certain things. And so I've had to tell people in those spaces, let, let me play devil advocates with you and let me give you a great scenario. When I tell you about the drug problem in the United States of America, it didn't exist before Ronald Reagan was president. Mm. Mm. Talk about it. And so it's so it's so interesting you bring you bring that up. So my um my 18, my line brother attended UNC Chapel Hill for uh, pharmacy school. 
And so uh, one thing that you and I both share, we're both members of fraternities within the um, the divine. Now, you know, I think mine is better, but, you know, that's neither <laughs> uh, here nor there. But I remember one day we had got done. So at UNC, there are these outside basketball courts. Right. So we got done balling and we're driving back to this house and it was around rush. And as we're driving down, I'm talking about it is it had to be at least like a thousand women out there. And you see them chanting in unison. You see them blindfolded. You see them doing all these things that are considered pledging. But God forbid we we even think about doing any of those things. And you see the actions of what that double standard really looks like. And so for me, that um, transitions into my next question, right? When people think about higher education, they think about it as like, oh, it's like college, it's fun, everything is go lucky. But most people do not realize how difficult that job is. Most people, go, like nobody uh, is growing up and says, oh, when I, when I grow up, I want to be a higher education administrator because most people do not understand fundamentally how difficult that job is. So I would love to hear about what your transition was like from, from corporate America back into the higher ed space. Sure, sure. You're, you're hitting it right on the head. Most people don't know, like, they just think of, like, everybody in, and probably in your family, you work at a university, oh, you're a professor. <laughs> That's what everybody in my family thought. Oh, you, what, what you teach? And I'm like, <laughs> I teach life. <laughs> so I like to tell them. Um, people don't realize when you see a college through the movies, through the things we've seen about mm -hmm. college life, it's always seen from a balcony and a student perspective. Mm. They never see the facilities person. They never see the financial aid coordinator. They never see the athletic director. They don't see those parts and aspects of college mm. unless you went to college. Mm. And so the transition for me was kind of simple in some regards. I had been very heavily involved. I was working in corporate and I had two people tell me that I would be great still working in higher education. One was Carl Crow. Carl Crow and me had a great conversation. He handed me this thing about student affairs. I was like, what is this? And he was like, oh, I want you to read more up on student affairs. It's everything outside of the classroom mm. uh, from that perspective. And I read up on that and I was like, oh, this is really cool. I think I can see myself in it. Then I had a woman named um, Colleen Curry, who was like, like a mom and mentor to me while I was in college. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, what Colleen Curry did for me is what I want to be able to do for other students when they get to a predominantly white institution mm -hmm. from that perspective. So I seen a Colleen Curry and a Carl Crow who were instrumental in my college uh, life. And I said, why couldn't I go back? So I decided to do this. I was like, you, I am about to give up this corporate job yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, because money's too good. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure this is something I really want to do. So I applied to go to graduate school um, a year into my, uh, my corporate job after mm -hmm. I graduated college. And I got, uh, I looked at Tennessee, uh, I looked at Ohio State, I looked at University of Akron, where I went to undergrad at, as far as I'm concerned. The dean of the graduate school at the time was my fraternity brother. Mm -hmm. He said, Tyranny, if you come back here, we'll take care of you, right? Mm -hmm. So frat saying, hey, you're going to take care of me. But I still was looking to go out. So I applied mm -hmm. everything. I did my campus visits, the whole nine. And it was just something about like, I was too scared to go outside of Ohio. Mm. Um, at the programs I looked at and was accepted at as far as I concerned. I was still like 23 years old, like cold feet, like I don't know nobody if I move to Tennessee, I don't know nobody if I move over here, you know what I'm saying, will I be able to survive, right? We all had that in some regards. And I know Akron was familiar, family was still close. So I decided to go to Akron. But when I got in my first two classes, 
Because mm-hmm. what I was doing was still working full time. So mm-hmm. working full year, decided to take part-time classes. And the mm-hmm. way the program set up is you only needed 36 hours. So I can literally go all year round and stay on track to graduate in two years. Mm-hmm. So I started that summer with two classes. And when I started that summer, I was like, oh, this is it. You know, you start off with your leisure, your law class uh, or your intro to student affairs class. Mm-hmm. And that fall, I met Tom Vukovic, who happened to be the vice president of student affairs at one point in time at the University of Akron, who was teaching our student services class. Mm-hmm. And he became like a, a person that kind of took interest in me and vice versa with him, because I was like, oh, I want to be him one day. I told him that mm-hmm. right in the class. I want to be you one day. And I was like, you're the shot caller. You're the big boss for student affairs. I want to be in your role. And he was like, Tierney, I need you to be in my role because there's not enough people to look like you in my role. Mm. And then when he said that, it hit me. So every time I went to class, I was picking his brain and staying on top of being engaged with Dr. Vukovic as far as that is concerned. Then after a year of going, you know, all year round, I decided I needed to get experience to be able to be marketable. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Because I can't just say, oh, I worked in corporate America and I got this degree. So I actually resigned from my job and then went and got a graduate assistantship at Warden Wallace University mm-hmm. uh, right now. And I was a residence hall director and a care coordinator, which is uh, over alcohol-related issues mm-hmm. uh, when I was there. And that opened up my eyes to a, even a whole nother world because it's one thing to be in a corporate side of the house and have to deal with microaggressions, have to deal with diversity issues. But then you have to also think about when you get into this profession, particularly mm. the time I'm getting in where it was like really an influx. There's more people of color now in the field. But when I first came along, it was still like, we were still dragging along. And so mm-hmm. in that realm, you know, they hired, it was four of us um, that were hired uh, as graduate students of color. Now I'll give credit. You know how I got that uh, job opportunity? Oh. I was doing a paper for Dr. Vukovic's class. Mm. And they told us we had to interview a senior level administrator in student affairs. I actually picked up the phone since Baldwin Wallace is in Cleveland and it wasn't far. And I was like, oh, I just literally went like, where's the schools in Northeast Ohio? Okay, Baldwin Wallace. And called and got an appointment with Denise Reading, who was the vice president of student affairs. She said, sure, come on up, sweetie. And you know, you can interview me and write your paper. So I went up there. Interviewed her for about 90 minutes. She took me on a tour camp. She's like, you ever been here before? I said, well, I got family members that live around the corner. I've driven past mm-hmm. it. I, I don't have never been campus. Walked me around campus, talked to me some more. Walked me right into the director's meeting they were having. It says, this young man needs an interview for one of our graduate <laughs> positions. Now, that's why I say there was favor in that, right? Mm. It was favor that I went and asked her to do this paper, but I wasn't expecting to get a graduate assistantship out of it. But that's what happened. I walked mm-hmm. in there and she's like, he needs an interview for a graduate assistantship. Boom, I interview, get the graduate assistantship, go to work there for a year. But I learned so much. I learned responsibility more. Because still at 23 years old, you still kind of partying, you still kind of having fun. Mm-hmm. I was feeling myself, still had some money in my pocket, all this other stuff. But I had to learn more about responsibility. First mm-hmm. time I supervised people. Mm. So, you know what I'm saying? So I'm supervising people and I had to make sure I took care of them and understand their needs. And I'm a supervisor of people that are literally only three, maybe four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned. So it was a lot that was in that, but also had to deal with the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Had to deal with death. Mm. We had lost one of our colleagues in our cohort that was a graduate assistant who died that year, mm. right? You know what I'm saying? While we were there trying to take care of everything else. So a lot happened in that one year that kind of prepped me to say, okay, I know this is the field I want to be in. Now it's a matter of what is it I'm doing to career map? Uh, and that's what I've been doing since I left Wall Wallace's career mapping to get to a vice presidency you know what I'm saying? Now that changed along the time because I originally was like, oh, just get to a vice presidency. 
I think it was when I was at the University of Tennessee and I transitioned to Louisville that I said, I want to be a college player. Mm. Because I realized even at the VP level, yes, you have your fiefdom, but truly the shift and the change for a college presidency or for those who are in a college presidency can have a true one-on-one impact. And I've seen Uncle Charlie, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. do his thing. I've seen a Kevin Rome, uh, I do his thing. I've seen multiple things. My dissertation was on African-American male college presidents, right? Uh, you know, one was an NCCU alum. Uh, one was my former uh, uh, president when I was at Bowling Green State University. That's mm-hmm. where I went to work after I left Bowling Wallace University. So I've seen strong leadership of African-American males mm-hmm. at predominantly white institutions. And them, like, you know, you say, if you see it, you can be it. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about with this. If they see it, they can be it, right? So it's one of those things that happened overall that I saw it and I realized I could be that. Mm. Mm. And I think that that hits on something, right? And, you know, one thing I've realized, and I don't know if this is more so recent, I know like coming up, you know, watching shows like A Different World or uh, The Cosby Show, that's where, you know, we first got introduced to HBCUs, right? Whereas now you're seeing it more so on the mainstream level. Like recently this past Sunday, the All-Star Game was dedicated uh, to HBCUs. You see the alpha step and you see... um, um, uh, HBCU alum playing in the league and right. like even as we were talking about with Lavelle Moton you see now that Stephen A. Smith and Chris Paul have this docu-series on ESPN that's focusing on his journey and so you're someone that has traversed those two paths right you've seen um, you've worked at uh, HBCUs but you've also worked at PWIs similar to you you know I went to NCCU I worked at NCCU I'm currently at Penn I've worked at Penn. And so just seeing those institutions from a different lens, talk to us a little bit about from an administrative perspective, from a, from a senior administrative perspective, wh- what does that look like for you traversing those two different spaces? No, that's a great question. I've worked at, you know, two HBCUs and where I purposely did that. So I, I got to a point when I was at the University of Louisville, I like I'm having racial battle fatigue, like, <laughs> And I was just tired, like, they just not getting it. Mm. And I said to myself, I want to go work for HBCU because I know what HBCUs through my studies have done for the black middle class mm-hmm. and just for black education as a whole mm-hmm. in this country. Plus, if you read about the greats, they don't come from PWIs, mm. right? Talk about they it. They come from the HBCU space, right? Mm-hmm. And I ain't going to just say Dr. King because that's what everybody want to say, Dr. King. There are literally CEOs, Fortune 500 uh, individuals, people who own their own businesses, the two chains of the world mm-hmm. come from HBCUs. So as I tell anybody, mm-hmm. I'll take an HBCU student and put them up against anybody from Stanford, MIT, Yale, and Harvard. Mm. And people look at me like I'm crazy. Why? Because all these students need is a chance. Yep. And that's what HBCUs give. The same students that might not be accepted at UNC could go to the NCCU and IE become vice president of the United States of America. Mm. So it's important Talk for about us it. to understand that, right? So my experience was the Mecca, right? So we talked about Howard being the Mecca. When I left to go from a PWI to HBCU, I stepped on foot and was like, I'm home. Mm. Like all this black excellence, all these individuals that were focused on one thing, and that is educating the minds of black people. Mm-hmm. And HBCUs, in my opinion, are more diverse. Now, they have their issues around diversity, mm-hmm. like every institution, but mm-hmm. are more diverse than the PWIs, more in, in, um, more diverse when it comes to acceptance. 
Because mm. I remember our white and our Latino students at NCCU, and they would say, oh, I came here because it's lit, or I felt more like home here than mm -hmm. going to mm -hmm. Chapel Hill or Greensboro. So that's the key, right? We are a, a very warming people who embrace others, where that's the opposite when you come to a PWI, mm. right? You come to a PWI as a student of color, you got to look for the one Black person might speak to if there is one there, you know what I'm saying, from that perspective. And so nobody's sitting here at uh, you know at a PWI saying we're going to embrace everybody. They say that. We mm -hmm. say it on our statements and all this other great stuff, but it doesn't truly happen. And so when I was at the Mecca, when I was at Wakanda, uh, from that perspective, it was mm -hmm. very embracing. And I also thought it was very important because I, I have a passion for working with African-American males. And so in that space, I knew that I could touch more African-American males than I could at a Chapel Hill, at a Louisville, mm -hmm. at other mm -hmm. places. Because when I did the data at Louisville, since I ran the African-American Male Initiative, we only had 500 total on campus. Mm -hmm. Now, once I take away the Division One student athletes, that cuts that in half. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So our graduation rates ain't going to be through the roof. They're not going to be great. I go to an NCCU. It's like a two-to-one ratio. But still, there are more brothers who need the support and help to kind of get through some of the navigation of what's going on. And they just need that guidance. And the AMI program was really amazing at NCCU. But I, it was like Wakanda meets Ireland, mm. <laughs> as I I'm like to say. Talking about the AMI program, I stand here as a proud graduate of the first exactly. cohort of the Centennial Scholars Program that was there before the AMI program. Yeah. But no, I think that really hits on something. So I was watching I Am Athlete earlier today, right? And there was a sister on there that she got on uh, with Brandon um, Johnson and like, you know, created this whole um, avenue. And she said something that was so fundamental. She was, she said, you know, going to an HBCU for her wasn't like being at a PWI where you make friends out of necessity, right? Like you see four black people like, oh, y'all here too? Bet. We sit down <laughs> together. Whereas it's like, no, like, you make friends out of people that you actually want to have in your circle. And so what, and so as you think about making that transition from your HBCUs to the PWIs, what, what, what was that experience like? So going back to the PWI was an adjustment, right? Because mm. I was in Wakanda mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. Then when I came back to the PWI space, I told you I had to come back to Ireland and the United States of America. Mm. Because then it was a real reality that all this space that I went to, my chicken Wednesdays, my fish Fridays, the homecomings is different. The tailgate is different. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Just the conversation is different. Mm. And when I came back to the PWI space, I felt isolated, right? Mm. Because we'll walk back on the PWI space. And again, you might walk into a meeting with leadership and you might be the only one. So mm. you go from being, hey, it's all of us here. All of us are equal. All of us look the same. We all had some different experiences and some similar experiences to going back to a space where you're one of very few. Mm -hmm. And then you have to argue, fight, or understand that we need to create more space mm -hmm. for senior leaders, for individuals who look like me to come into that space. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get into whole ideation and the policies and the different things and structures we have around hiring, searches, all this other great stuff moving forward as a whole. At the, the HBCU space, which is very interesting, and you experienced this when you were at HBCU, we didn't care if you were black or white, could you do the job? And so you had a good number of white folks who worked there and vice versa mm -hmm. in some regards. Here and at other places at PWIs, there can literally be a stop gate based upon what that person is around, like we said before, fit. Mm -hmm. saying this person can be a cultural addict. I've personally seen it. I sat on a search committee. I ain't gonna call out the school or whatever <laughs> like that. That where we knew the right person for the job was a yeah. man of color, mm -hmm. but we did not hire. When I say 
This man had like a 99.9% <laughs> approval rating from everybody in the search. Mm-hmm. There was one issue that rose. Somebody had called, uh, you know how it is in the grapevine. People pick up the phone, try to call. Somebody yeah. had called one of his people who was reporting to him and gave a bad report. They were like, I can't stand it. Da-da-da. I'm like, wait, we're going to make a decision because of a, a review of somebody, not his boss, somebody that he reports. Like, they report to him, the person we mm. about to hire, mm. and not give the person the job because of that? Mm. That showed me how much weight and clout um, that others <laughs> have mm-hmm. in some of these searches in some regards. Because I'd be like, okay, well, that's just one disgruntled employee. You ain't gonna make everybody happy. But if 90% of the people through this mm-hmm. process are liking and agreeing this is the right person, mm-hmm. yet we don't hire that person, something ain't right. And I think that's, you know, so as you know, I used to, um, I, I still work within the executive search world, but I used to work for um, a firm that specified specifically in the higher ed space. And, you know, to the example I'm about to give brings me to the quote that we've come a long way, but we still got a long way to go, right? And I remember we were sitting down, it was um, it was the selection meeting for the candidates to come to campus, the campus interviews. So, you know, how it usually works is you have the first round where the committee picks, you know, the 12 or like 24 candidates that they're interested in, and you cut it down to the airport interviews that you pick your final like four or three to come to campus and we're sitting there and you know i'm not going to mention um the firm nor the institution um out of respect but this can this candidate came about this man had been president of three research institutions he had literally taken uh one of those institutions from a commuter school to an r1 is uh, to a research uh one institution in a seven year span, he had created a whole different mechanism of developing their athletics program, all things that the institution we're working with was looking to do. But this, this ideation or this, this term, mm, will he really be a cultural fit came to perspective. And at first, I didn't really understand what that meant. Right. But after you hear it a couple times, and you connect a couple dots together, it's like, Oh, you mean because he's black, right? And it's 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 one of those situations that I often battle with this, and you know that um, that throws me into my next question. I remember a really good mentor of mine, and I know somebody that you look up to as well, Michael Sorrell, once stated, and I asked him, I was like, you know, at one point I want to be a college president, and he was like, well, that's a job that nobody should aspire to, and I was just so confused, and I'm like, wait, what? He was like everybody wants to be a college president. Everybody doesn't know what it means to be a college president. Right. And so talking about that, like when you think about everything that you've endured, when you think about the challenges that, that, that seed holds, when you think about the heaviness of the crown that um, is bestowed on the person to lead an institution, what, and, you know, this is this is a really honest question. You know, what makes you believe that you can be that difference maker to truly, truly impact change, not only for an institution, but the students, faculty and staff that call the institution their educational homes? No, great question. You know, a couple of things come to mind for me. I'm not aiming to be a president today or tomorrow. I know mm. it's a future, goal, mm. right? And it's not something that uh, I'm rushing, right? So I'm not rushing to say, I got to get, all this done for I to be a college president. No, 
by the grace of God and the experiences I have, the things that I focus on trying to get mm-hmm. will help me put me in position Mm-hmm. to think and somebody think of me as in that type of role mm-hmm. i've met michael sherrill i've talked to him a bunch of times I, he has said that uh, in multiple different speeches uh, uh before the thing of it is is that i want to prepare myself for leadership and i look at it from a leadership perspective mm. not saying that i want to be the, the guy the college president i want to be the leader mm. that people look to and say he's the person we can bring to change management and and, uh, and involve us as an organization Mm. Why? Because he's done it in previous roles. He understands the needs. He understands our dynamics. So when we talk about fit, when we were just talking about that scenario, my my research and my dissertation, we talked about that. We talked about, one, I looked at where are these college presidencies happening at for Black males at predominantly white institutions? Well, they're not in the South. That, that'll let you know some things right there. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, sir. They are mostly in the Midwest, West Coast, and, and give or take on the East Coast, but not in the South mm. and not over in like the Idaho's and Montana's. Like I looked at, literally looked at research-wise, like what state? So these California's, mm-hmm. you know, the Ohio's, Indiana's, you know, saying Illinois, those Midwest uh, states. And then of course, you know, some of New York's, New Jersey's, mm-hmm. all the other stuff. Those are where you're seeing if a black male is named president of a university, i.e. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Dr. Cosby out of Alabama and he's going to school in New Jersey. Those are the locations. They're not happening in the South. So that still lets us know that from a cultural fit or from a cultural perspective, mm-hmm. they're still not ready in the South for a leader that looks like near you. Mm. Right? That's what I found in my research. One. Two, it's about the preparation. So for me, I want to be prepared with student affairs, academic affairs, facilities, fundraising, athletics, about the eight or nine different entities that you have to be engaged with the career mapping standpoint. Let me be able to become a great generalist with no breath and death in all these areas mm-hmm. to be able to lead them. And mm-hmm. by the grace of God, if somebody sees fit, like, hey, you should put your name in the hat or you are somebody that's being tapped for a future president, cool. But I'd rather be prepared and not get the job mm-hmm. than, than not be prepared and have a chance to get the job. Mm-hmm. And that's how I view it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. How I view myself to be able to lead people is the key. Leading the students, leading the faculty, leaving um, the, uh, the, the staff is key and important. Mm. And see, to me, it's one thing I sell to people. Just as much as you respect the chancellors is just as much as how you respect the guy that takes out the trash of the university. Mm. Because how you treat people will be the key in your leadership. So mm-hmm. everybody knows when the chancellor walks in the room, everybody, oh, it's the chancellor, it's the chancellor. Here's what I tell people. When Tom walks in the room and takes out the trash, y'all treat him just like you treat me. Mm-hmm. And that's true leadership. For the simple fact, Tom is just as important to the fabric of this institution as mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the major difference, hopefully for me and other individuals who come along for those next opportunities mm-hmm. uh, through the grace of God and from the room. I firmly feel also we're in a time of change. COVID has shown us that. You've worked at a search firm that we are looking for leaders who are different. Mm. Not the traditional model. You got to come up on the academic side. You have to have taught. We know that. I've seen it at Mullenberg. I've seen it at other institutions that I did research on where they hire people from the corporate entity, mm-hmm. right? They come in and be college presidents. We've seen that, uh, I think Morehouse is president. He's not from higher ed. I think his nope. background is in nope. business. So nope. again, how are we preparing from a leadership perspective? You know what I'm saying? I look at Harlan Sands at Cleveland State. I don't think Har- Harlan's working in higher ed, but he's been more of a business mm-hmm. guy, right? In that, book. But he's a president of the university. The, the president of Hampton came from the corporate realm. Thank you. Oh, the sister from Bennett. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Same mm-hmm. thing. So it's about the leadership and the abilities. Now, people will always argue because Falcon are going to say, well, what do they know about higher education? 
But half the faculty don't know what they're doing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of faculty don't want to be administrators. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They don't mm-hmm. want to deal with the bureaucracy when it has the budget cuts or we have to do certain things from that perspective. But somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. And so there's enough training programs. I just got accepted into a new one. Enough things that at least gives you the basics mm-hmm. and the things to study and think about and understand change management, evolving and everything like that to put you set up. But the key at the end of the day is how can I take an organization like you just mentioned with that gentleman from a commuter school to an R1 and who's going to buy in on the train as far as that is concerned? Mm. Mm. That's listen, there you go. Your next college president, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, and so my last question revolves around the almighty dollar, right? And I remember, you know, earlier in my career, you know, saying that I want to go into higher ed, but I also want to live a relatively comfortable and good life. And I was often told, well, if you're going to education, you're not going to make no money. (laughs) Right. And so one thing that we've been seeing more and more of is people turning their side hustles into like true passions and some using that as, you know, avenues to do that full time. And one thing that, you know, we were just talking about it's not a day that goes past that I, I don't see a notification for Facebook. TNE then posted this or TNE speaking at this. Like, I think recently you were speaking at Temple and I was like, oh, yeah. why are you in town? Let's grab some coffee. Like it was a Zoom call. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, what what that not, I don't want to use transition because that's not the right word, but what what has that addition been like for you in your life? Sure. So I've been speaking for over 10 years. Mm. I think in the last three to four years, around the time I got ready to come to, North Carolina Central, it really mm-hmm. took off for mm-hmm. a couple of different reasons. One, I honed what I was talking about and I became what I call a lifelong learner, not an expert, mm. but a lifelong learner about what I was talking about, right? Second, you know, as you know, I know a lot of people in the field. Mm-hmm. So as you grow into this field, a lot of people will tap you for certain things. And, mm-hmm. and that's really what's happened as of lately in a lot of different ways, a perspective. And literally I'm speaking from in different time zones, right? So I'm speaking from East Coast time all the way to West Coast and Pacific time, depending upon who's booking me, who's going. To me. It's always been a passion, of mine, right? It's always been something because in higher education, guess what? We always have to do some kind of presentation, mm-hmm. go to some professional development. So I read the book, uh, Speaking Grow Rich. Mm. Uh, I read a couple other different books and I just said, hey, this is a passion of my mind. Fall into it, right? Because when we retire, we always want an encore life, right? Yep. You want something else that you know that you'll be known for, or something that you'd be, you know, you, you can do. I can speak and I can speak for free because I love to do it. I love to be engaging in the dialogue, mm-hmm. the research and different things. It's just people are willing to pay, you, mm-hmm. as I like to say. And so that's fine. You know what your worth is moving forward. Now, people say, well, don't you want to leave higher ed and just go do that full time? No, I know I still have higher ed goals. I know there's certain things I want to do in a higher ed. Mm-hmm. To me, this is just a bonus. Mm-hmm. This is just a bonus for me to be able to say that one day, when I do lead an institution or one day that I'm in an opportunity to say, hey, I've also did this and work with these different institutions and have contacts from a global and national perspective moving forward. Mm. Also in the field, you're right. When you come in the field, first job I came in the field, I was making what, 27, $28,000 mm. a year. I made more than that in my corporate job, mm. right? And so when I first came into the field, I'm like, I'm doing this for love. I had to remind myself. And that's something we don't talk about mm-hmm. enough in college to students. What are you doing? Are you chasing money or are you chasing what you love to do? Mm-hmm. Because if you chase what you love to do, the money will come. Mm-hmm. And I tell people that because I, you know, my first, yeah, about my first seven to 10 years, I didn't make a lot of money in mm-hmm. working at higher ed. 
I made enough money, like I, I tell people, to basically pay the bills, put a little bit of savings away, you know what I'm saying, and just live. Mm. I didn't say I was living comfortable, I just said live, yeah. right? There's a difference. And so it wasn't until also I got my, you know, my second master's and my doctorate degree that I realized that there's value in getting an extra degree mm -hmm. that you're worth more, mm -hmm. right? So I was mm -hmm. able to increase my salary once I got my doctorate. I was able to double my salary once I've gotten into a leadership role. And those things didn't come to mind. The money at a certain age is just the money. It's the mm -hmm. other things that you want to do that have an impact in the life legacy that matters overall. Now, don't mm -hmm. get it twisted. Everybody got to eat. Everybody wants some good. I know I love some nice clothes and a bow tie, all the other good stuff as far as that's concerned. Them things cost money. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point in time, it becomes about the work and the work that you do that you know your impact. There is mm -hmm. nothing like I had happened to me three years ago when I had a former student of mine call me up and say, hey, I want you to come hood me. Because I remember I met you my freshman year at freshman orientation. And I rocked with you for four years. You don't want to told me to go to grad school. I went to grad school. Now I'm getting my doctorate degree. I want you. He didn't say his professor. Mm. He didn't say anybody else. He said, I want you to come fly here in hood. And I did. That was an honor to see someone that I saw come in as an 18 year old. Now mm. I'm getting a doctorate degree and calls you up and say, come hood me. Mm. That is what this is about. That is what you know, whether you impact one student or 10,000 students, as I like to say, that is what it's about as that far as that concern. The problem with the, the higher education, particularly student affairs, we have too many programs right now that are graduating a lot of people in the student affairs realm. Because like you said, early on, people now are starting to find out, oh, I can work in higher ed. And so we've created a lot of positions, we've created like mm -hmm. student success coaches and you know, assistant director of this, specialist for this, but they still don't pay well enough. Mm -hmm. You know, the average salary probably coming out with even a master's degree. If you hit 40, you're lucky. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, mine was 27, 28 when I came out. Mine so it's 31. usually around 37, 38 right now. And when FSLA came out, everybody tried to jump everybody up, right? Mm. To 47 at least mm -hmm. from that. So so at NCCU, I remember that happened. So some people got, got lucky there because you think about FSLA never really went into full effect. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those things that it helped some organizations out. But still, you got students who come out with a bachelor's degree, go work at Amazon as an Amazon operations manager making 60. Mm. So that's why the field has to catch up also on its own equity of how mm -hmm. we pay and view people. Because here's the kicker in the head. That director of multicultural affairs, student orientation, um, conduct, whatever those individuals are, at least on a, whether it's in student services, student affairs, financial aid, they're the ones that are doing the day-to-day -day business yeah. and impact with your students. Those are the main ones you got to come out and have support, especially in financial aid, because it's a niche area. Once you get into financial aid, most people don't leave financial aid. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And ain't nobody over here like, oh, I'm going to go work in financial aid. I want to work Not in financial aid. Not to mention financial aid is one of the, the, the most hated offices. Exactly. So you got to think about if a person's making $40,000 a year working financial aid, we have to have a true conversation about equity. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And what we do to take care mm -hmm. of our staff. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not salary, what is it we do around perks, benefits, days off, you know what I'm saying? All this other stuff that we need to have a conversation around moving forward. But you're also seeing a mass exodus. I don't know if you see all this on Facebook. There's these, there's this group by, I think her name is Kayla. She started it, former higher ed pros. I think I've seen that. Yeah, where they are literally marketing and talking to, hey, you got an idea you work in higher ed and you want to take whatever you did in higher ed and make it a business, we'll help you. Mm. And so now what you see is people either leaving, want to start their side business because they start doing it and 
you know, if I wanted to leave and go speak full time right now, I think I could do it. Mm. I think I can get enough contracts because I book out usually three to six months in advance, all that mm-hmm. stuff that I could probably supplement my income uh, and be able to do it. But I tell mm. people I need to supplement my income three times. Mm. You know what I'm saying? For me able to leave. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's real. But that's real because people don't realize there's some benefits now. You know, you got to think about your retirement, your dental, your, your medical, you know what I'm saying? That money, if you got kids, it goes aside to the the, uh, the parent savings account, all the other stuff. So you got to think about those things. People quickly mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm going to leave because I, you know, I made $75,000 speaking last year. That's my salary. No, oh, pause. You got to think about them taxes. You got to mm-hmm. think about all them other things as well. But I say that to say um, that most people are leaving the field because of salaries. Because I see it on Black Sap, I see it on Facebook, I see it in the groups, I see it when I go to conferences, and they're like, why are they only paying this much? Or how we put people through the ringers mm. for entry-level position, right? We literally got five people on the search committee for entry-level position. You talk about pleasure, that's a different type yeah. of agent. Man, well, I'm a firm believer, yeah, let's involve people. But it, 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 it takes six, seven people to hire a restaurant <laughs> coordinator. <laughs> That's just me. I'm getting old. So, you know what I'm saying? It's these little things like that. And I'm like, I don't need a whole team mm-hmm. of eight people to hire mm-hmm. one residence hall coordinator. You know what I'm saying? When that is basically the entry level position that most people come into, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And hire it. And some people won't do it well. Some people ain't. You know what I'm saying? Because we're also not preparing them for the next roles. Because mm-hmm. now you get people who are stuck. All I do is, because that's how it is. Our field will get you stuck. All you know is multicultural parents. All you know is residence life and house because we're not interchanging. I keep mm. saying that every school I've worked at, let's cross train staff, i.e. in a time of crisis. COVID is a prime example. How could we have cross trained staff mm-hmm. in multiple different ways to meet student needs and demands? Mm-hmm. But no, we just focus on res life. We, yes, become a niche person. You have to have your niche. We, we got to create more generalists mm-hmm. who have a niche to be able to uh, meet the demands of our future students. So also ed tech. Ed tech is taken off in the last four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, four or five years ago, you didn't have a people roll or a handshake from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And they've been introduced and have took higher education by storm. EAB is buying up all uh, the smaller ed tech slash, you know, consulting firms mm-hmm. and become a conglomerate now. So that is another thing you see people say, well, we'll hire you. Handshake, most people working handshake have worked in higher ed. Mm-hmm. They've kind of said, oh, you got the experience, you know, the, you know, the culture, you know, the, 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 the schools come work for us mm-hmm. and we're going to pay you a decent, better wage you was making at, you know what I'm saying, at your uh, higher ed job and you can work remote. Mm. Who wouldn't want to say, oh, I can live in Austin, Texas or Dallas, Texas for a company that is based out of San Francisco yep. and, and still makes 60, 70, $80,000 a year, live my best life and still have a connection to higher ed, but I'm not in it. Mm, and you touched on something that I can't believe I haven't forgot about is the ed tech space, right? And so as I think about my transition, you know, as I mentioned, originally, I wanted to go the faculty route and become a president. But one thing I realized is I love, I love education, but I also love innovation, right? And so I see myself within the ed tech space. And I have a friend, um, I forget the name of the company he works for. But just like you were saying, the company is based out of San Francisco. But when COVID hit, they said, we're working remote um, indefinitely. Instead of paying $3,000 a month to pay rent in uh, San Francisco, now he's paying $800 to live in Austin, Texas, <laughs> right. right? And so we're seeing people that are getting these traditional higher ed degrees, but now they are, they, they, they're finding different avenues. So I guess the last and final question that I have is, 
how do we make sure that our institutions are staying up to date with what's happening and not getting too stuck in not only the past, but getting stuck in the way things have always been done, quote unquote? No, that, that that's our gift and curse as higher education institutions is we're strong, so strong on tradition, but at the same time, we must evolve. And so what you're seeing is that it's going to take millennial and uh, I gen generation future leaders of higher ed to really shift that culture. Mm -hmm. uh, as the baby boomers are retiring out or getting tired, COVID is going to beat them up uh, from that perspective. And as Gen Xers are just like, hey, I'm cruising to retirement, you're going to see those millennials. So I'm, we're doing a presentation at Masters um, this year called the Black Millennial BPSA, Young, Gifted, and Black. And we're talking about these Black millennials who, by the time where they were 36, 37, 38, most of them between 32 and 38 became BPs. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? What experiences did they have? Did their identity play a role? What type of institution were they at? How, uh, what experience did they get to be able to rise at 34 or 35 years old and become a VP, right? At such a young age. Mm -hmm. That is gonna be the difference of innovation and change for our field as a whole. If we have not learned from the pandemic, if we've not learned from the racial integration problems, we have to be innovative and creative. Nobody told us, cause I'm teaching two classes here at UNC that I would be teaching these classes cause I thought they was gonna be in person teaching these classes from a virtual perspective, that it takes more time for me to teach it and prepare from a virtual perspective. And that from an instructional design perspective, I have to make sure before a class, everything is together. Mm. And so it's important for us to understand that virtual is not going away. So how do we adapt? We still need to have high service, high touch with our students, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Enrollment is down. Mm -hmm. So what I tell a lot of people is, you need to know other parts of the university. So if you're in student affairs, you need to know everything that's going on in academic affairs, fundraising, faculty research, the whole nine, because mm -hmm. it impacts you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to cut faculty. Think about no, it. We're going to do budgets because faculty ain't going to get cut. It's going to be, we're the low-hanging fruit of staff or senior level positions that are on mm -hmm. our field that we can just cut and start from there. I know yeah. that because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that now, even internally within my department, right? So it's important for us to understand that. Then how are we in student affairs making sure that we are so prepared that you can't cut? Mm. That I am actually somebody you need versus when they're going across the board and say, okay, we got to cut this, we got to cut this, we got to save X amount of money, who's expendable, right? I've had friends who've gotten furloughed, who have lost their jobs during this pandemic. But that lets me know a couple of different things. They're expendable. Mm -hmm. So how do we create an atmosphere and how do we cross train people to make sure that they're not expendable, that even though I'm in student affairs, I can go enroll in enrollment management, I can go work in fundraising, I can do X, Y, and Z in other areas. Because mm -hmm. it's, again, going to be based upon leadership and skills. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of student affairs, as I tell people, is if you're not telling your story of how you're president of your own college, meaning you, and how you have to budget, do, teach, psychological issues, fundraise, write for grants, you become your own college. It's how you sell it to individuals of your unique value add to that institution or why we can't lose will. Mm. That's powerful. And so with that, brother, thank you. This has been a truly informational, you know, like I said before we started, this is a masterclass. And I hope <laughs> people are truly able to get that from you. And um as always here at Voices of Black Folk, we just want to highlight Black people across the diaspora doing amazing things. And so with that being said, make sure you check us out. Make sure you subscribe. 
And thanks again. Have a good night. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and really took something from it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode. Our goal on this podcast is to highlight and give a voice to the Black community by bringing phenomenal individuals who are creating and charting paths toward greatness. And through your support, we can continue to change lives. Thanks again. And don't miss the next episode of the Voices of Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu.